0: This morning's sermon comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God has not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die.
1: Why you hate work. This was the title of an article in the New York Times several years back. And in this article, uh, they noted a survey, they referenced a survey that had been done uh, of over 12,000 workers worldwide that revealed pretty, conf- and, and with much confirmation, uh, people that are lacking fulfillment in the workplace. Listen to some of the results of this survey of these 12,000 plus people, 18% said that they had regular time for creative or strategic thinking at work. 25% said they didn't connect to the company's mission or didn't feel connected to the company's mission. Or only 25% felt that. 33% felt like they had opportunities to do what they enjoy most. Only 36% said there was overall positive energy in their work, and at their workplace. And 37% said they had the ability to balance work and home life. They, they summed up this survey in the article and said this. Only 30% of employees in the United States feel engaged at work. And that number globally, in the other countries of which they had surveyed, dropped to 13%. A global poll conducted by Monster.com revealed that 76% of people experience what they called significant Sunday night blues. That three quarters of people speak of Sunday night being a time of anxiety or not looking forward to going to work Monday morning. Now, Those are not stellar statistics. They reflect, I think, reality. But why? Why is this the case? A lot of us would be quick to point to bad bosses. A number of you would throw your arm up, or bad managers, or toxic work culture, or a failure of leadership. And while all of that may be true, that's not the core reason. I believe the core reason of why this is a reality is because we don't have a good answer to why we work. That we don't have a good answer to the question, why do you work? Genesis 2 has a good answer, and we're going to explore that. Why do you work? First, to fulfill a need. In verses seven and eight, there are two very powerful observations that lead to the same powerful truth. Look at verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The life of God, the very life of God was breathed into the man. This is a parallel to what we learn in Genesis 1, that man was created in the image of God. That means that God breathed his image into mankind, into human beings. Second observation, look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God planted a garden, and then he put someone in the garden to take care of it. What we learn here is that God works. God worked to create the world. God worked to plant a garden. Now, those two observations that were made in the image of God, God breathes his very life into us and that God himself works lead to one very powerful truth. And that is God works, therefore being made in his image, we work. That work was not a product of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Work didn't come after Genesis 3. God put work in paradise. Now that's a head scratcher when you read those statistics that God put work into paradise, that work was a part of his perfect design for humanity, that work was a part of his perfect design. And what we learn from that is that work is as basic of a human need as food, as water, as sexuality, that work is a basic human need. Now, what are the implications of this? I believe there's two. There's two powerful implications. If work is a basic human need, then you need work more than you need the money that it brings in. Let me say that again. If work is a basic human need, then you need work more than you need the money that it brings in. We live in a culture where work is spoken of in terms of the return that you get from it, the paycheck that you get. The value of work is judged by how much you earn from it. But if we understand Genesis 2, Work itself is to be satisfying. God worked and then he rested on the seventh day to enjoy his good creation. And so he calls us to work and to enjoy and to be satisfied by the work itself. Now, the proof of this is in how much time you spend and how many hours of labor you spend on a hobby that doesn't return you a paycheck. In fact, it actually costs you money to do, right? You spend a lot of work on hobbies. When I Kim and I owned our first house, I did all kinds of home improvement projects. I remodeled a bathroom. I installed an irrigation system. I painted the kitchen cabinets and I wasn't trying to build equity to flip the house. I just did it because it brought great satisfaction to work and to develop, and to make something beautiful. My daughter the other day said, Daddy, Daddy, come out and look at. She has this little nook in the backyard next to our house. It's like a little garden where there's little plants and there's seashells from the beach. And she, she had spent time cleaning this out and taking all the fallen leaves out of it and rearranging stuff to it was beautiful. And she said, come look, come look. What is that? What is that that she found such great satisfaction and joy in rearranging this little three-foot-by-six-foot plot of land to make it beautiful? Because we're wired to work. The implication of this implication is that you find work that is suited to your gifts and how you're wired that the number one question that you should ask about work is not, and I'll speak to everyone, but certainly to college students who maybe are seniors and you're getting out of college and looking for a job, the number one question is not, what is the best paying job? That's not the number one question. The number one question is, what type of work am I built for that I can find satisfaction and enjoyment Participating in. Second implication if work is a basic human need, then you should no longer think of work to be something you get through quickly to get to leisure and pleasure. Notice the rhythm here God doesn't say for six weeks or for six days rest and one day work. Right? Nor does he say, uh, you know, half and half, rest for half and work for half. No, just quite the opposite. He says, work six days, rest one. Work is actually a thing that we can take in large chunks without being harmed. Right? Leisure and pleasure is great, but we can only handle so much of it. Right? We are wired, we are wired uh, to work. A pastor attended a community prayer breakfast, and he sat at a table with a group of men he didn't know at this community prayer breakfast. And the conversation came up around retirement. And there was one man at the table who this pastor says was probably in his early 50s, and he was talking about how forward he was looking to ending his career. He couldn't wait to get to retirement. And he said, said, my wife and I had a conversation about it this morning. And his wife asked him, what are you going to do when you retire? And he said to his wife, I'm going to sit on the couch and watch TV all day, every day. And nobody at the table said anything, except for this pastor. He couldn't keep quiet. Tends to be the case with pastors. And he said this. He said, if you do that, you'll be dead in a year. And this guy was, you know, I mean, jaw dropped, shocked. Said, why? What are you talking about? And he said, if the lack of meaningful work and purpose in your life doesn't kill you first, your wife will. (laughs) Now we're getting to marriage next week, so we'll put a pause on that. But we are we are wired and designed to work. It is a basic human need like food, water, and sexuality. So why do you work? Number one, it's a basic human need. Second, to make culture. To make culture. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, what does this mean? Well, it's parallel to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living creature. It's a command to take the raw materials that God provides and to develop it into something that is useful and beautiful for the glory of God and the flourishing of humanity. That's what it means to work it and to keep it or to take care of it. Whenever you bring order out of chaos, I'll speak a second to you administrative types, right? Who love order. When you bring order out of chaos, You are continuing the work of God to fill and to form and to make culture. Uh, Whenever you draw out creative potential, those of you that are teachers, whenever you draw out creative potential of a student, you're continuing God's work of forming and filling and making culture. Anytime you unfold creation and develop it into something that it was not for human flourishing and for the glory of God, you are participating in this creative cultural development. The word culture, we get it from the idea of cultivation. That work is cultivating the earth. It's cultivating this world. Think about it. Why didn't God just speak a word and create millions of people in the beginning with thousands of human societies and settlements? God could have done that. Why didn't he name the animals in Genesis 2? I mean, he named things in Genesis 1. Clearly, he had the ability to name. Why didn't he name the animals? Because God was giving humanity the task of developing and cultivating human society. That he has put that on our plate. Work is culture making. It's the cultivation of the earth. Farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something that's beautiful and that gives meaning to life. When you take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when you push a broom and clean up a room, when you use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when you take an unformed, naive human mind and develop it and teach it a subject, when you teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when you take material from God's world and put it together into a beautiful piece of art, you are continuing God's work of forming and filling and developing his beautiful world, taking the raw materials and developing it into something that's useful and beautiful to the glory of God and to the flourishing of humanity. And this means, and this is massively important that we hear this, this means that all work is sacred. All work is sacred. The words, the verbs work and keep in verse 15 are the same verbs that are used to describe the service of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle in Numbers chapter three. The task that God gives Adam, and by extension, humanity, has a priestly nature to it. It is caring for sacred space. Every square inch of this earth is sacred space because every square inch belongs to God. And he has given you a slice of the garden, so to speak to work, and to take care of. This means that the work of a pastor, the work of a missionary, is no greater or no more important than the work of an electrician, the work of a teacher, the work of a homemaker, the work of a doctor. All work is sacred. There was a team of researchers from the University of Michigan and Yale who were trying to do a study on how people handled what the world would call unglamorous jobs, how people approach their jobs when it's an unglamorous job according to the world's standards. And so they chose to study the occupation of hospital janitors. And what they found, at least in this one hospital, major hospital in the Midwest, was shocking. As they interviewed the housekeepers and they interviewed the janitors, what they found was a group of people that didn't consider themselves as janitorial staff. They considered themselves part of the professional staff, part of the healing team. And what that meant is you had housekeepers and janitors that would get to know the patients and their families, bring a box of Kleenex, bring a glass of cold water, encourage them, and then this was striking. They talked to one housekeeper. This is amazing. They talked to one housekeeper who would rearrange pictures in the rooms of comatose patients, hoping that the change of scenery might have a positive effect. All work is sacred. All work is sacred. And you have been given a slice of the garden to work and to keep, to make culture. So why do you work? First, to fulfill a basic human need. Second, to make culture, to cultivate. And third, finally, to serve God. We arrive at verses 16 and 17, and they speak of the way that mankind was to relate to these trees in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, verse nine says there were two trees. There were tons of trees, but identifies two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life and every other tree outside of the one of the knowledge of good and evil led to life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil led to death. you say, "What? what are these trees all about? What's the significance of these trees? What does it mean for work? There was nothing magical about these trees. There was nothing magical about the fruit on these trees. They were no different than a fruit tree that you have in your backyard, Okay. They were not magical. They were sacramental in the sense that they were a physical means to a spiritual transaction. Physical means to a spiritual transaction. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented the tree of self-sufficiency, of, of human autonomy to determine morality apart from God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree of independence. It was the tree that if you ate from it was a declaration that I will find purpose, I will find joy, I will find meaning in this world apart from God on my own. It was a tree of independence. Eating from this tree was a declaration that I am not working for God or serving God. I am working for myself. That was what this tree represented. It was Two trees, two paradigms for life, simply put. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man at the center, God on the periphery. The tree of life, God at the center, man on the periphery. And we know, and we'll get to it in Genesis 3, that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they asserted themselves into the center, independent of God, things went bad. Really quickly, things went bad. You work to serve God, not man. Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, says it this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, what happens when you don't serve Christ in your work? When you functionally aren't working for him, what happens? Two things happen. First, you won't do quality work that is beautiful in and of itself. You will raise the bar of your work as high as your boss takes it or as high as your manager takes it. Or you will raise the bar of the quality of your work as high as you need it to get the paycheck. Right? There, there will be a lack of, of excellence. Dorothy Sayers writes an unbelievable essay on work. And I would recommend it to you. You can Google it and find it. But she asks this question in this essay. She says, what should the church be telling an intelligent carpenter in its congregation. She asserts that most churches would tell that carpenter, make sure when you're not working, you're not getting drunk, you're being a good person and show up at church on Sundays. And she responds quite firmly to that and says the very first demand, this is what what this carpenter should hear that the very first demand from God to this carpenter is that he make good tables. She goes on to say this. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly, speaking to the, yes, go to worship, absolutely. And yes, make sure your entertainment is honoring, sure. But what use is all of that if in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Speaking of Jesus, he was a carpenter. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. And let me just add a little bit to what she's saying here. Christians, and even Christian-based companies can get a reputation for subpar work. And here's why. When the emphasis is only put on serving Christ by treating people well, or even just serving Christ by evangelizing in the workplace, it can leave room for subpar work that is not glorifying to God. When you're serving Christ in your work, You serve Christ by doing good work, that that is honoring to God, That's glorifying to God, and it promotes the flourishing of humanity. Second thing that happens when you don't serve Christ in your work, when you don't functionally work for him, is that you won't stand up for what's right, nor stand up for what causes human flourishing. If you're working for a false god, if God's not at the center, but some false god is at the center, whether it's provision, which the paycheck meets, or approval, which the boss meets, or a success, which a promotion meets, or security, which means avoid getting fired at all costs, then you'll agree to and contribute to ideas and products that aren't about the glory of God and the flourishing of humanity. Let me give you a great example of this. Not too long ago, Volkswagen was called out for massive violations of emissions in the United States. Now, Volkswagen set out to launch their diesel cars in the United States, and it was a big marketing campaign, and they promoted how these cars had, you know, amazingly low emissions that would meet the EPA standards. And here's what happened. From the top down in that organization, pressure was put on workers to make sure that these diesel cars would have low enough emissions to meet the standards in the United States. And when it became apparent, there was no way that they could meet this standard. There's no physical possible way they could meet these emission standards. Here's what they did. They developed what's called a defeater device. It's software that went in these diesel engines that could tell when the car was being tested in a laboratory on a stationary test rig. And when it could sense that, it would switch the engine into safety mode, where it would run with lower power and lower performance. And then when it was out on the road, it would switch back into regular mode. Now, when they uncovered this, they found these cars were putting out 40 times the acceptable limit. I share that, maybe you're in an organization. Maybe you're in a company where something to that kind of thing is happening. If you're not serving Christ, if you're not functionally working for Christ, then you won't take a stand for what is right and what is good for human flourishing. Why do you work? To fulfill a need, to make culture and to serve God but there is a critical missing piece to this answer. In John chapter 20, after Jesus is crucified and laid in the tomb, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She arrives at Jesus' tomb and she's weeping. She turns around And she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Jesus is standing in front of her, but she thinks it's the gardener. Now the text reads as though this is a mistake. Like, oh, Mary, he's not the gardener, it's Jesus. But was it really a mistake? On Good Friday, Jesus was buried in a tomb in a garden. A garden is where things are cultivated and where living things come from, which was a perfect place for Jesus to be buried in. Because a couple days earlier, he had said, if a seed doesn't die and fall to the ground, it cannot bear fruit. And so on Saturday, Jesus the seed was buried in a peaceful garden. And on Sunday morning, the first seed to come out of that garden was resurrection, who became the gardener. Mary wasn't mistaken at all. When it says she supposed he was the gardener, she got it exactly right. Because Jesus is the gardener of new creation. The first gardener, Adam, failed in his task and left the world as a result of it to war and sin. But the second Adam will not fail in his task, Jesus Christ. He is the gardener who is cultivating the new heaven's And the new earth, who is cultivating the new world. And his restoration and his cultivation of the new world, he does it through you. That's what your work is. Let me just sum it up this way Why do you work? You work to partner with Jesus. To cultivate new creation. Let's pray. Father, we confess our views of work. We certainly know with the fall in Genesis 3 and with sin that work is hard and it's frustrating, there's thorns and thistles, and we'll get to that in Genesis 3. But Father, we confess even just lacking that understanding of why we work in the first place. It is a part of our basic need. Would you convince us of that? And would you convince us of the beauty of working to make culture, to cultivating this world, to taking the raw materials you've given us and developing them into something that's useful and beautiful for human flourishing and to your glory? Father, I pray boldly as we return to work tomorrow, maybe even some this afternoon or this evening, when we return to work, that you would renew our vision of what we're doing, that we would see the slice of the garden that you've given us, that we would cultivate it to your glory, to the flourishing of humanity that we would go to work knowing that we are serving you, Jesus, that you are the gardener, you're the second Adam, you're making things right, and you have chosen to use us, broken, sinful people, to be a part of that work. So would you help us to partner with you, Jesus, this week in cultivating new creation? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.